morning. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here at Door Creek, and we just were singing about the nations, and um, I grew up in a trilingual home. My parents both hailed from Switzerland, and there's a lot of things that were just really great about that heritage, and then there's a couple things that are a little weird. Like, we had some really strange home remedies growing up. I don't know what kind of home remedies you have, but I guarantee the home remedies I had, you couldn't find slides on the internet of it. I mean, these are some of the things, you know, I think the duct tape is warts, right? I think that's a home remedy. But we just had some strange ones. So I'm going to tell you about a couple of them. Um, There was this one, it was called Visi Supa. Visi Supa in Swiss German means white soup. And white soup, basically in a word, was gross. It was really bad. It had something to do with oatmeal. I don't know what my mother did with oatmeal, but it didn't look like oatmeal or taste like oatmeal, and it was soup, but it was bad. Now, one of the good things about getting VC Supa is, in the MyFair house, if you were sick, the, the, the rule was, you're horizontal. There's none of this, you know, I don't feel very good, oh, great, you can just stay home and play with your toys and watch TV. No, no, if you were sick and home from school, you were horizontal. And so mom would set up the TV tray, and when the VC Supa came to your bedroom, the good thing was that it was in your bedroom and mom was going back to get things done around the house. And so the minute she left, we were dumping that soup really quick. So that was the VC soup thing. Then there was this other thing. I don't remember this, but I was talking to my sisters and said, no, we did this. Uh, I don't think I did it, but they did it. And it was like if you had a fever, my mom, we called her Moody, which means mom in Swiss German, Moody would go grab a pair of your socks. This is really weird, but she would soak them in vinegar. And then she'd put them on your feet, and that was supposed to draw down the temperature. Okay, that was a little strange home remedy. But this one was really bad, and you didn't want to get anywhere near this next one. It was called Vantuza. Vantuza was something that my dad loved to give us. And he'd only give it if you had this nagging cold that just kind of kept going on. He said, okay, I think you need Vantuza. And then, then he'd go get the little box. And in the box were like 12 little glass jars. They weren't jars, but like little glasses. And he'd rub them with something. I don't know if it was rubbing alcohol or mineral spirits or whatever. And then he'd light it. And he'd tell you, you know, take the shirt off your back. And when you'd light that little jar, it would create a vacuum, a suction. And he'd put that thing on your back. And all of a sudden, he'd go, it's just drawing all the blood. I guess it's circulation. It's, you know, well, can you imagine getting like 12 of those on your back? And going to the gym and taking a shower and everybody looking at the welts on your back going, what in the world happened to you? We didn't want to get anywhere near Van I tell you, that just the threat of Vantuzas cured more colds in our home. <laughs> so I was telling a friend a couple years ago about these things. And he said, well, that's interesting. You can go down to some spas on Michigan Avenue in Chicago and you pay big money for that treatment. They're still doing it today. Well, anyways, I don't know what you grew up with when it comes to home remedies, but James wants to ask us a question. What do you do? What do you do when you're sick? What's your, what do you turn to? What's your response to things? For some of us, you know, we just, we just figure it's going to go away. We don't do anything. For some of us, you know, we're going to the medicine counter. We're going to WebMD. We have lots of different responses, but open your Bible, and let's see what James has to say about this very thing. James chapter 5, we're coming to the very last section in our study in James's letter. You can find that on page 856 if you don't have a Bible. And I just encourage you 
to keep your Bibles open as we work through this passage together today. So James writes this, chapter 5, verse 13. Is any of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Really important verse passage, very important, relevant teaching, because I don't know if you saw it this week in the paper, but there's this couple, the Newmans, who took a passage just like this and had a very different response to their 11-year-old daughter Madeline's complications with diabetes. Did you hear about that story? She died. Because they understood that the scriptures teach that you just need to exercise faith and pray, and you don't need doctors. And this week, they're going to be arraigned of second-degree homicide charges. It's, it's a very relevant teaching. I mean, if you ever flip through the channels and you start seeing some of these faith healers on TV, the kind of guys that will say, hey, just throw your medicine up on the stage here because you don't need that. This sickness that you have is of the devil, and you just need to be praying in faith and let me you know, touch you, and, and you'll be healed. It has everything to do with what happens here in our church. As people have called the leaders of our church to pray over them, to anoint them with oil for healing. It's, it's a very important teaching because it's so misunderstood. And when it's misunderstood, it becomes so, so dangerous. We turn this teaching in God into some kind of a rabbit's foot. But when James sets up this teaching on prayer, he's really asking us about how does our faith work out in different kinds of situations relative to what our response is to those situations. So there's the first question. You see it there in verse 13? He says, is any of you in trouble? That word trouble could be the word translated suffering, going through difficulty, hardship. And he says, what's your reaction when things are hard? Where do you turn? You turn to yourself, you turn to friends, you turn to information, technology. Where do you go to? Do you try and deny that there are troubles? Do you try and wash them away with something that makes you feel better? Or is it a narcotic? Where, where do you go? James says, when you're in trouble, a person who's walking out their faith in Christ turns instinctively to God, and they pray. And what is that prayer? It's an active dependence where I say, God, I'm not smart enough, strong enough. I need you. Help me. Give me wisdom. Give me strength to persevere, to stay on the straight and narrow as I go through this difficult time. 
first response. Now, I think a lot of times we don't turn to God because we're proud. I can handle this. This isn't too big for me. But when we think about it, we've kind of been chasing this thing down for a while, and maybe we're not handling it so well. If we're honest, I think a bunch of us would say, the reason I'm not turning to God is, quite frankly, I'm mad at God. I think he's got something to do with my trouble. And I don't really want to talk to him right now. Or there are some of us say, you know what, I'm not even sure God exists, so why should I turn to a God that I don't know even exists? And if he does exist, I'm not sure he cares or even has time. He's busy. Check out this verse from 1 Peter 5, 7. Wonderful verse. Peter says, give all your worries and cares to God. Here's why. Because he cares. He cares about you. He cares. So James says, what's your first response when you're in trouble? And, and maybe we just need to ask ourselves this question. How much worse is it going to have to get our trouble before we actually turn to God? How much worse is it going to get before we realize, maybe, maybe I can't fix this? Faith works out in prayer when we're in trouble. First instinct, first response. Then he, then he asks one that's, that kind of catches you by surprise because this whole passage is about trouble, suffering, sickness, but then he's got this little question, if anyone's happy. Now, why is James talking to us about happy, being happy, and why is he telling us what we should do when we're happy? Because I think James knows this, that we're just as likely to wander in times of success as we are in times of suffering or sickness. And so he reminds us that when life is good and we're happy and we're enjoying success, don't forget to turn to God and thank him and praise him for who he is and what he's done and what he's blessed us with. Because the scripture throughout says this, in times of success, when it's good and easy, the natural inclination is for us to forget God. To think that, you know, somehow this is all happening because of us. And James would take us back to verse 17 of chapter 1. Every good and perfect gift is from where? From above, from God. Now he gets into, now he gets into this whole matter of sickness. But before we do, let's just ask the question. Right now, if life's good, have I been praising and thanking God? Recognize it's from his good hand. Because James says, you got to do that. you got to make that connection. And if you don't, and when you fail to do that, you and I are vulnerable to drifting away, forgetting that all we have, even the breath we take right now, is from him. So look down at verse 14. Because now he focuses in on something he's going to talk a lot about, and that's what do you do when you're sick? So he says, is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up, and if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. I'll never forget when young Tim came into the room. All the elders and pastors were gathered. Tim and his parents came in, and Tim had this weird thing happen where one morning he woke up, and he had completely lost his memory. He didn't know who he was. He didn't know who his parents were. He didn't know where his school was. He didn't know any of that. It's like his whole hard drive just went, it's gone. And it was traumatic. 
for this young man, like a middle schooler, and his parents. So he comes in, and we anoint him with oil, and we pray over him and lay hands on him. And it wasn't instantaneous, but I think it was the next Mother's Day. And it had gone a while. In church, all of a sudden, like that, came back. Going, wow. God, you're awesome. You worked this unbelievable miracle. But I've also been with those elders around a friend of mine, Jeff Perrine. He was my age. He was young dad, fit, loved to run, distance runs. And he had done one of these distant runs on the Mississippi, and he comes back, and he has these headaches. So he gets an MRI, finds out he's got a tumor in his brain. The good news was it's, it's not cancerous. The bad news was they couldn't get him out, and they kept growing and growing. And after surgeries and surgeries, and after even we'd anointed him with oil and prayed over him, Jeff died, and I did his funeral. And that happened with my friend Jonathan Thigpen as he battled Lou Gehrig's disease. And that happened with Andrew Chung and his fight with pancreatic cancer. And and maybe it's happened to you or some people that you know or you go, I I had people pray it. I haven't been healed. And how do you make sense out of this teaching? Because it sure looks like at face value, if you pray and anoint people with oil in the name of Jesus, that they're going to be healed. God's going to raise them up. So what do we do here? Well, let's kind of just work our way through here so we understand it. Because there's a bunch of people that would have us believe that that's exactly what you should expect. That if you pray in the name of the Lord and use Jesus' name, that you can just expect that you're going to be healed and everybody would be healed. And the only reason you wouldn't be healed is because you don't have enough what? Faith which becomes this really double, cruel thing going on. You're going through suffering, and now people tell you the reason you're not being healed is because you're deficient in your walk with Christ. Well, so what does it say? It says when we're sick, and we can get an idea here that the sickness here is pretty bad because you're not able to go and see the church leaders. You need to call for the... You're bedridden. So this is... What he's saying, he says, the first response should be to pray and to seek those who would pray for you. James is not saying, nor is the Bible saying, that you can't go find medical help. Jesus said the sick need a what? A doctor. Luke, who gave us the gospel in the book of Acts, he was a what? He was a doctor. When Paul's writing to Timothy and he's got stomach problems, he gives them advice medically. You ought to take a little wine. It's good for your stomach. That's how they treated it in that day. It's not saying we can't go to medicine. It's saying the first thing we ought to do is go to God and to go to the spiritual leaders who have care over our hearts because what James is going to teach us is that sickness is not always just about a physical thing, that it's more to it than that. And so he says, call these spiritual leaders. And as the spiritual leaders come, they are people who are to bring the oil and they're to bring faith that comes with these prayers. And they're to anoint them with oil for healing and pray in the name of Jesus for that. So what is this oil? Well, we know this. We know that when the disciples went out in Mark chapter 6, two by two, they came back and reported to Jesus, Jesus, 
we anointed people with oil and we healed many people. So we know the disciples did that. We, we can't ever see an example where Jesus anoints anybody with oil. The closest we get is when he, remember, he takes the saliva and mixes it in with the dirt and he makes this kind of muddy paste and puts it on the blind man's eyes and he sees. But that's about as close as you're going to get to Jesus in oil. We know that it was a medicinal thing in that day because we remember Jesus' story. Remember the, of the, uh, the uh, Good Samaritan, the guy's going down to Jericho, he gets beat up by the thugs, and the Good Samaritan comes and he bandages his wound, wounds and he takes out the oil and the wine to, to take care of those wounds. We also know when we start chasing down the use of oil in the Bible, in the Old Testament, whenever oil was being used, it was to consecrate either people or things for God's purposes. So the things in the temple and the tabernacle, they were anointed with oil. The priests were anointed with oil. The king was anointed with oil to set apart that person, that object for God. And maybe there's this symbol of setting apart this person for God's healing. Maybe it's just a a symbol of this person's being covered with oil in the same way they're going to be covered with, with prayers, covered with God's gracious healing. But here's what we know for sure. The connection of the person's healing is connected not to the oil, but to the prayer and faith. So there's nothing magical about the oil. I, I remember going to Jerusalem and seeing some cool little, um, you know, little... I don't know what it's called. Not a vase, but it looked like a vase, but it was really small. So what is that? A vial? Okay, thanks. We're, we're all together. So it was this, you know, it was made out of olive wood. I'm going, wow, this is like oil from the olives on the Mount of Olive, you know, where Jesus was. This is going to be like really good oil. This is going to do it, right? And James says, it's, it's not about the oil. It's not about the oil. It's about the prayer. But he, but he instructs us to do the oil. So, so then the question is, what, what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? And what is this prayer of faith? Because I think that's what's going to be the key to guard us against saying, look, everybody who prays is going to get healed. Says, All you need to do is believe. And, and, and it's going to be uh, helpful as we try and wrestle with what place does suffering have in this world? Because James said, not if, but when we go through it, we're going to go through it. Jesus said we're going to go through it. How do we work this out when we pray, believing that God can do it, and he doesn't? Well, I think it's in those two phrases, in the name of the Lord Jesus, prayer of faith. Now, prayer in the name of the Lord Jesus is, first of all, a fundamental understanding that the only way we can approach a holy God is through Christ. And so we're praying in Christ's name because that's how we have access to the Father. No one comes to the Father but through me. Who said that? Jesus. So praying in the name is understanding. That's how we get to God. Praying in the name, though, is praying according to God's will. So we read this in 1 John 5, 14 and 15. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of him. So James would say, remember what I said to you back in chapter 1? I said, when you go through trials, rejoice and persevere, knowing that the perseverance is going to teach you more and more what it means to live and be like Christ. But what you're going to need, though, is the wisdom to have that perspective that this is a good thing and God could do good things. And so pray, pray. 
pray believing. Pray believing that I can do this. And he says, don't be a double-minded person because if you're double-minded and not sure and wishy-washy, is God going to do this? Well, then you're not believing what God just said. God said, I will give wisdom to anybody who asks and I'll give it generously. And so praying in the name of Jesus is praying according to his will. And so the prayer of faith is an understanding not just that God can do it, but God subjectively gives that person, more importantly, the spiritual leaders, this sense that God will do it. But here's my experience, and I bet you I've done this at least 50 times. I don't think there was ever one time where I had this sense, I'm 100% sure God will do it. I, I would say... I, 100% of the time, I knew God could do it. But I didn't know God would choose to do it. I mean, I know he's raised the dead. So what is, what is it to heal somebody? And so what this is saying is that when our prayers of faith in a God who is able to do anything comes alongside of his purpose, which says, I will raise this person up, we should expect and not be surprised that God will do it. But there's humility in these prayers where we go, I don't have a corner on God's will. I'm not really sure. I feel like you're asking us to pray in faith for this person's healing, and they sure want us to, and so I'm going to believe it, Lord. But if it doesn't happen, I'm not walking away from you going, what in the world happened here? Because ultimately, here's what I know about this body. It isn't going to last. Our hope is not that we be healed from cancer, ultimately. I mean, that's a really big deal. But our hope is that we would get a resurrection body that never dies. And one of the dangers that happens of people, often on TV, is they take the promises. Remember last week of the better day? the day in heaven when there will be no more sorrow, sickness. They take those promises and they bring it back in today and say in the fullness of those promises, we should experience all of it today. Well, don't get me wrong. We should experience and taste part of heaven today. What we're doing right now should be part of that. But we should never take the promises that are ours in heaven and say, and you should expect those today. And that's what often happens. And that leaves people so confused when they go, I, I, I did it. We did it. But God, what happened? And we give up on prayer and we give up on God. And what we end up doing is what James is so concerned about as he closes the letter, is we walk away. We drift. We really don't think he's good. We really don't think he answers prayer. So he says, look, you do that. The person will be raised up by God. And if they've sinned, their sins will be forgiven. Well, that then brings up this whole question is, we just were talking about the connection of faith and prayer. Now, what is the connection of sickness and prayer? Because he's talking about it, right, at the end of verse 15. If he sinned, he'll be forgiven. So what does the Bible say about sin and sickness? Well, remember back in the story of Job? Job's friend were convinced Job is sick and suffering because he what? Because he sinned. God said to his friends, you had it all wrong. You need to repent of how you were thinking. Job's a sinner, don't get me wrong, but it's not why he's suffering. In fact, Jesus said the very same thing. John chapter 9, there's a blind man. His followers come to Jesus and say, Jesus, this guy's blind and somebody messed up. Was it him? Was it, was it his parents? Who sinned, Lord? And Jesus said what? 
neither. Not this man, not his parents. These things happen so that the works of God might be displayed, demonstrated. His mercy, his compassion, his power, his healing power. But then we remember the paralytic who's lowered down through the roof. His friends bring him there. And the first thing Jesus says before he he heals him is paralysis, your sins are forgiven. And Paul at the end of 1 Corinthians 11 says, look, some of you in Corinth are sick. Some of you are weak. Some of you have died. Some of your own members of the church have died. And here's why. Because you've sinned. You've been taking the Lord's Supper and you haven't examined your own hearts and you've been drinking and eating this in an unworthy manner. So there is a connection, but it's not a perfect connection where we could say, whenever we're sick and suffering, it's because we sinned. Because both are possible. So we we need to have that. But here's what I think James is telling us. And here's been the habit as I've had opportunity to interact with people in the workings out of James chapter 5, is when we're sick, we just need to acknowledge this. Maybe God's using this to get my attention. Maybe God's using this to get my attention. And what we ought to do is just kind of shut the doors of our heart and do a little inventory. God, are you, are, are you wanting me to just see something that I'm not seeing? Because all of a sudden, James saying it's, it's, it's not just about the physical thing. There's a spiritual thing. And oh, that's why you need your spiritual leaders. So I think of Jeannie. She walked in. She'd asked for the elders to gather, anoint her with oil. And she came in, and Jeannie was a piano teacher, and she'd broken her thumb. And she said, you know, this is my livelihood, and I'm on my own, and I, I need you guys to pray for healing. And then um, she had reflected as we asked her to, just search her own heart, see if there's anything else God wants to be doing here. And she said, you know, as I did that, all of a sudden I realized my twisted thumb was a picture of my twisted heart. She said, I realize I am so twisted in bitterness and with this unforgiving spirit for people who've wronged me And I realize that it's really not about my thumb anymore. It's about my heart. I think that's what James is saying. And so then I think it's this kind of ounce of prevention when he gets into verse 16. He says, so you've got to confess your sins to one another. Live a life that is is confessing and is honest and open. And the context there is in this smaller group that's gathered together. And I think the, the application to us is as we break down. We don't, we don't do it in this kind of a setting here. There may be times where we would do that, but it, it's in a, in a group of friends that you trust, in a group of friends where you can be real. Do, do you have that? Where I mean, you can just be real with who you are and where you are and to share your struggles. Boy, I long that you have that, that we have that in our smaller communities. That's part of the richness of community. And that's why you need to get back and sign up for a, for a Quick Connect so you can get into that kind of community. Because if we don't have that, we're in a dangerous situation. We're in a dangerous situation. What we're doing when we come into that group, we give each other permission to say, you know what, speak truth into my life. And if you see me wandering... Bring me back in love. 
It's one of the best reasons why you ought to join a church, join this church, is because when you join this church, you know what you're doing? You're giving the spiritual leadership of this church permission to watch over your heart. It's really, it's really huge. And so he goes and he talks about confessing one, our sins to one another and he talks about prayer being powerful and effective, the prayer of a righteous man. And you and I might say, but I don't know if I f- feel that righteous. Well, righteous means that we're living by faith. We're righteous not because of what we've done, but, but because we're believing in what Christ has done, his perfect sacrifice, his perfect life in, in our place. And that's our hope and we're trusting his promises. We're obeying his commands. We're righteous not because we're perfect. We're righteous because our faith is in Christ. It's on Christ. And he says, that man or woman, when they pray, God acts. It's powerful. It's effective. And he says, well, take Elijah. Who's Elijah? He says he's a man just like us. I'm going, Elijah, a man just like us? Isn't this the dude that the chariot came down and swept him off to heaven? He never died? Isn't this guy who calls fire down from heaven? He doesn't seem like me. Well, you read between the miracles and you find out he's just like me. He's just like you. He's a man who knows some incredible victories, but he's a man that knows some deep, dark valleys. I mean, right after Mount Carmel, when God gives him great victory, he's depressed, running for his life. He's not full of faith. He's full of fear. He says, don't forget Elijah. And you start chasing out the story, and this is a good thing. When you're reading the Bible, and by the way, in most modern translations, when you come to an Old Testament quote, it's usually in italics. It just looks different on the page. Go chase it down. Go back into that Old Testament passage and get not just to the verse, get to the neighborhood of the verse. And all of a sudden, you find out, man, there's a lot of things going on here. So at first glance, it looks like what James is doing is saying, prayer is powerful. Elijah is an example of powerful prayer. That's what it looks like. But all of a sudden, you go back to 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18 and 19, and you find out, oh, man, there's a lot more connection going on here. So what's going on in 1 Kings 17? Well, there's a wicked king, Ahab, who marries even a wickeder uh, queen, Jezebel, who is all into this idolatry. And they're worshiping this idol called Baal. And they've totally turned their back on God. And Elijah is convinced that he's the only one. He wasn't, but he, he, he thought he was the only one left standing for God. The people had left God, and so God gets the people's attention. And you know what he used? He used suffering. It wasn't sickness. It was a drought. God tells, he tells the prophet Elijah, you pray that the heavens stop raining and they'll stop for three and a half years. And what was that about? God wanted to get the attention of his people because they drifted so far, their hearts were so far away. Then God said to Elijah, he says, I want you to set up a test so that the people know that I really am God and I alone am God. That there are no rivals. And so he meets Ahab, and he sets up the contest. Get your foreign prophets of Baal. We'll meet up on Mount Carmel. And here's what's going to be the proof to whose God is the true God. It's really interesting. It's the God who answers prayer. Here's the prayer. 
You guys pray, and I'll pray to my God. You pray to your God. And the God who answers our prayer by sending fire down and consuming the sacrifice, that'll be the one true God. So all morning long, the 400 prophets of Baal, they're dancing, they're doing all kinds of gyrations, and they're cutting themselves and mutilating themselves, and nothing happens. And now it's Elijah's turn. The first thing he says is, put a lot of water on it. They go, put some water on it. He said, put some more water on it. And he said, put some more water on it. Then he prays to God and listen what he says. This is so cool. He said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and have done all these things at your command. That's why he's full of faith when he's praying, because he knows that's exactly what God wants him to do. And then he says, answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And what does James do then in verse 19? Look down at 19. All of a sudden he starts talking about people who've wandered, who've wandered from God, from the truth. And all of a sudden you're saying, wow, this is really cool. Elijah was God's instrument to bring people back to God. And now James says, guess what? You're to be an instrument. If you see a brother or sister who's wandering from the truth, your responsibility is to bring them back. And when you do it, you're saving them from death. I think that's eternal death. I think that's a really important thing to hear. There's some of us that we would say right now, I've wandered. I'm a long way from God. But you know what? When I was 13 at a campfire, I did this. And you know what Jesus says? He who endures to the end in faith is the one who will be saved. And Jesus says there's going to be a lot of people at the end of the day that say, Lord, 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 we did all these things. And, and, and Jesus says, I, I, don't, I don't know you. You think you have a relationship with me. Your relationship with me has been AWOL. And the only thing you're trusting in is what you did at camp when you were 13. Your faith's not in Christ. You don't have a life of faith. You're saving that person from death and covering over a multitude of sins. You and I, maybe this week, God's going to ask us to do that. Maybe nobody in this room knows where you are, but all of a sudden, bam, God's talking to you, and you're going, I'm, I'm miles away. I am so far away. My heart's so stone cold to God. I remember a day. I remember a day. It's time to come home. It's time to come home and stop the delusion that it's just going to be fine. James is saying it's not going to be fine. That we can wander from the truth so far that we put ourselves in eternal peril. And so we have the opportunity to be rescuers. Now, how do we do that? Well, there's a great little verse in Galatians 6 2 that says we're to do it in humility and with gentleness. That means we understand who we are, we're a mess too. And if we're walking with God in faith today, it's only because of His grace. Not because we're great. And yet we point him lovingly and humbly to Christ. The one whose arms, like the father, the prodigal son, are wide open. 
And so we say, well, how would we know? How would we know if someone's wandered? How would you know if you've wandered? Well, James just says, work through the letter. You know you've wandered from the truth when you no longer think God's good, when you no longer think his purposes are good. And so you give up in your trials. You, you, you're, not, you're doing what Job's wife said. You're cursing God. You're mad at God. You don't think there's anything good in here for you. You're wandering from faith when, when all of a sudden we find ourselves week after week coming here and we're listening to the word of God, but we're, it's never changing our life. We're not doers of the word. We're hearers only. Chapter 1, verse 22. We know we're wandering from the truth when all of a sudden the truth of, of God's word that says we're to love God with all of our heart and keep the royal law of loving our neighbor as ourselves. and there's favoritism and there's quarreling like he talks about in chapter 4. We're at war with people. We're, we're wandering from the truth. When, when I realize my words are reflecting the bitterness of my heart, I'm wandering from the truth. When, when I think that somehow I can control my future and I don't need to surrender to God's sovereign, providential care over my life and all things and thinking somehow I actually control my life, I've wandered from the truth. When I forget to live for a better day and, and all I live for is today and I hoard wealth for myself, I, I'm wandering from the truth. When I, when I forget to be a person of prayer, where I'm demonstrating to God my dependence upon him for all of life, I'm wandering from the truth. So faith works. James says it works out even on our knees. And for anybody here who's wandering, who's in danger, James says, come home, come home. And understand, we may have a part in that. Bring him home. Bring him home. Let's pray. Lord, I guess in this um, walk of faith, all of a sudden James has just pointed out some pitfalls, things that will turn us away from you. And in turning off the, the path, it's like some of those pictures we saw from Jackie. There's some really dangerous heights, falls that we could take. And so... Lord, we're understanding that if we're people of faith, instinctually, our first response is turning to you. So help us to do that for any of us who's in trouble, to pray. For those of us who are riding high, it's sunny and blue skies, and life is good, help us to remember that every good and perfect gift that we have is from you, for us to praise you and thank you. And for anyone who's sick and discouraged, Lord, we pray you'd fill them with hope that, Lord, if it's your will, that you grant them healing. And then, Lord, for any of us here who are wandering and they're far from you and don't know how it happened, but they know where they are, Lord, would they hear your loving call, come home. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.